From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In the wake of the police killing of George Floyd, a national uprising is continuing with protesters enduring more police brutality, curfews, and here in D.C., actual U.S. soldiers deployed on the streets. Activists on the ground say what they want and what's next. Since the founding generation literally and metaphorically had its knee on our neck, and this is a, an outpouring of felt pain that our forefathers and foremothers fought for, and we feel that Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Rakia Boyd, Trayvon Martin, Terrence Garland, Philando Castile, and on and on, Amadou Diallo, we continue to see the same symptoms, which indicates to us that we are not being heard. So we're taking to the streets to make sure that our voices are registering with the people who have the power to make change. And for so many, the present is continuing to echo the past. We speak to Natan Elaine Kemp, author of There's Something About Edgefield. And there was this tension because whites disliked these blacks who had, who had managed to, after freedom, develop their own societies and succeed. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. The video of George Floyd's death is America's snuff film. It is a movie about the country's death, and tens of thousands, if not millions of us, took to the streets this week to say that we will not accept death by police, or by a deadly virus for which we still have not been tested, or by this corrupt system that is funneling trillions to the ultra-rich or corporations, while 50 million of us now have no jobs, and evictions and hunger are on the rise. Bonnie, rallying at D.C.'s core protest site at Lafayette Park in front of the White House, said that the video of Floyd being choked to death by former police officer Derek Chauvin was just a spark that set ablaze long smoldering frustrations about injustice and inequality. I came out because I'm sick of people killing us. You know, it's time and time again we see that someone is murdered in the street and like all it results to is a hashtag. And I, you know, I, I have black brothers, I have black friends, I have black family members, and it's, you know, who's next? So I'm just here to kind of, like, see what's going on and, like, protest along with everybody else. I think it's a lot of, like, built-up anger. Goes all the way back. You have Emmett Till, it's layered. People are just really angry and they're really upset. And then you have that conflicting with the pandemic. People have lost their jobs. You know, we got a measly $1,200 check. We're depressed, we're sick of being poor, and y'all are killing us, excuse my language, but we're, we're sick of it, like we're really sick of it, and we're angry, and the president, and then this man's, like me, was on his neck, and y'all known each other for like 17 years, so yeah, people are really angry, I'm really angry, I'm getting angry, like talking about it and thinking about it. D.C.'s Lafayette Square became the flashpoint and central to the narrative of protests this week when the Trump administration ordered riot police to disperse peaceful protesters on Monday in advance of Trump taking a stroll through Lafayette Park to stand in front of St. John's Episcopal Church and silently hold a Bible. Scores of protesters and journalists suffered injuries after being shot with rubber bullets, pepper balls, flashbang grenades, and tear gas canisters resulting in a lawsuit being brought against Trump and several of his cabinet members on behalf of the injured and Black Lives Matter D.C. Denunciations of the military attack are continuing with several military brass, including Trump's former Defense Secretary James Mad Dog Mattis, issuing a statement calling Trump's deployment of troops in D.C. a quote-unquote mockery of our Constitution. 
Marion Buddy, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, said in an interview with NBC News that Trump had abused the sacred space of the church. Consider the context. Um, after making a highly charged emotional speech to the nation where he threatened military force, um, his officials cleared peaceful protests with tear gas and horses and walked onto the courtyard of St. John's Church um, and held up a Bible as if it were a prop or an extension of his military and authoritarian uh, position and stood in front of our building as if it were a backdrop for his agenda. Also, I uh, was deeply disappointed that he has not, he did not take the opportunity. He didn't come to church to pray. He didn't come to church to offer condolences to those who are grieving. He didn't come to commit to healing our nation. All the things that we would expect and long for um, from the highest leader in the land. And even after the mashdown of protesters, 10 busloads of additional unidentified military troops disembarked near the White House on Wednesday, prompting friend of the show journalist Ben Norton to tweet, quote, This is what authoritarianism looks like. After decades of waging war across the planet, the U.S. empire is waging war directly on its own people, end quote. The second Cancel the Rents car caravan protest was held here in D.C. and in 70 other cities around the country on Saturday. Lydia Curtis participated in the action and filed this report. On June 1st, 30% of renters could not pay their rent. And on May 30th in Washington, D.C., a large group converged on the Carter Barron parking lot to rally for cancellation of all rents and mortgages until the COVID pandemic is over. Organized by the Party for Socialism and Liberation and the Answer Coalition, defense attorney Marvin Hilliard spoke out against the government bailout of corporations and connected the dots between capitalism and racist policing policies. This is amazing. So many people are coming out here yesterday throughout the country. So many that, in fact, the President of the United States and people now actually began tweeting, threatening to shoot protesters in the United States and followed it up with a demand to the Pentagon, who is now preparing soldiers to intervene against protesters. So we have the President of the United States determining that he is going to send federal troops against the civilian population of the United States. And it tells us everything about where we are right now, because when they arrested the police murderer, Chauvin, they thought that would end everything, right? They thought, well, arrest them and everyone would go home. And they've been really, really wrong. After the rally, we formed an 80-car caravan and snaked our way through the D.C. neighborhoods of Mount Pleasant, Columbia Heights, Petworth, and Shaw, areas disproportionately uninsured and underemployed, now heavily impacted by the COVID crisis. They're hoping that people won't notice. They're hoping that people will go home. But I think everyone here and everyone around the country is making it perfectly clear to the government, to the DA, to the police, 
that they have put meaning into the slogan and the chant. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. My husband, Mark, participated in this protest. Afterwards, I asked for his reflections. So what do you think uh, the impact of the cancel the rent caravan had on you personally and will have on the community? Well, on me personally, I think there's on a couple of levels. One thing is that I work with folks who are homeless or recently homeless, and a lot of them are in housing for the first time and have very, very thin margins of being able to like pay their rent. A lot of them get support for their rent, but even the portions that they pay, which are relatively small, if they were to um, have to pay back rent, he could have them on the street, which, which, which we've worked years to get them off the street for so long. So I see that as being something that the city really needs to step up because as we, as we know, the economy, the COVID-19 and the lack of employment and people being laid off has impacted people on the margins the most. And those people are in a situation now where if, if they were to go two or three months without working, well, they would be evicted. As we were going through the city with our signs and people see the signs on our cars and the, and the signs that we handed out to people, that people were really, really supportive. And some people, even though we didn't know who they were, we, we could tell that they felt supported just by this action. For more information about this growing movement, go to www.cancelthereents.org. Cancelthereents.org. This is Lydia Curtis in Washington, D.C. for On the Ground. Meanwhile, proposed progressive legislation from Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar to cancel rents and mortgages during the coronavirus pandemic is stalled in Congress. There are two other major federal government stories emerging this week that we are watching. Environmentalists are sounding the alarm over Trump's apparent use of the pandemic as a cover to sign an executive order waiving environmental regulatory hurdles to build pipelines, highways, mines, and other energy infrastructure projects. While Trump is justifying the order as necessary due to the pandemic economic crisis, legal experts say it's unclear if Trump has the legal authority to force such a change in laws mandated by Congress. And the federal charges levied against four members of the Embassy Protection Collective were formally dropped on Wednesday in a hearing before Chief Judge Burrell A. Howell in U.S. District Court. The four defendants are Adrian Pine, David Paul, Kevin Zeese, and Margaret Flowers. They were arrested on May 16, 2019, when federal police raided the Venezuelan embassy in violation of the Vienna Convention, which requires host countries to protect embassies and and restricts them from entering without permission from the sovereign government. Judge Howe sentenced the Embassy Protective Collective to no jail time. After a jury refused to convict them in early February, resulting in a mistrial, the prosecutors offered to drop the federal charge and substitute a minor local misdemeanor charge in the D.C. Code, incommoding, basically causing a disturbance. The protectors were facing a potential year in jail 
and $100,000 fine each. They are now on six months probation. The four protectors were in the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. for more than a month last spring with the permission of the elected constitutional government of Venezuela, headed by Nicolas Maduro, who is recognized by the United Nations and more than 130 countries. The United States was attempting to overthrow this democratically elected Venezuelan government. When that failed, it took the unprecedented step of recognizing the then-president of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido, as president and handing Venezuela's assets in the United States over to him, all in violation of international law. More on this story is at popularresistance.org. In D.C. news, Chantel James is covering an issue connected to national headlines. As thousands of D.C. residents continue to join in protests in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, they are also calling for police accountability and the defunding of police. In response to these protests, D.C. Council Member Charles Allen introduced on Thursday the Council's Emergency Police Reform Bill, which includes reforms to ban all chokeholds and release body cam footage within 72 hours of when an MPD police officer kills someone. An oversight hearing, which was scheduled for Monday to discuss the budget of the Metropolitan Police Department, was postponed by Allen, who was chair of the Council's Public Safety Committee. Sean Blackman of Stop Police Terror Project DC, which advocates diverting funds from policing to community needs, released to the public his video testimony submitted for the hearing. So instead of further investing in the police, We need to invest not only in community-based programs for public safety, but we also need to invest in people's ability to have access to food, clothes, shelter, health care, education, and gainful employment, the necessities of life. This is why we have these issues in our communities. And so the, the, the D.C. police don't need any more money. Police Chief Peter Newsham doesn't need any more money so he can keep lying about the reality of race police terror here in this city. We need to divest from the police and invest in D.C.'s black communities and in D.C.'s poor working and oppressed communities. Thank you. Allen cited MPD's response to protests as a reason for the postponement of the budget hearing. In the meantime, D.C. residents can still submit written and audio testimony for the council to include during its rescheduled police budget oversight hearing. To submit your own written testimony to the council, email judiciary at dccouncil.us. From Northeast D.C., this is Chantal James. In Culture and Media... The uprising in the aftermath of George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police has prompted debate about the use of the word violence to describe property damage and looting, when this word is never used to describe the looting of the American people for corporate, bank, or Wall Street bailouts, or violence is never used to describe injury or early deaths from a broken healthcare system, poor housing, toxic foods, or a polluted environment. 
In history, June 1st marked the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, during which as many as 300 African Americans died when whites burned down 35 square blocks and more than 1,200 houses in the prosperous Greenwood section of Tulsa, known as Black Wall Street. The city of Tulsa continues to investigate what happened to victims' bodies and has been digging for mass graves. Survivors and their families have continued to fight for reparations. Author and journalist Chris Hedges campaigned for a congressional seat in New Jersey for exactly one day on May 27th before being told that he is not permitted to run under FCC rules. The Green Party released the following statement. Regretfully, Chris Hedges was informed shortly after he made public his decision to run as the Green Party candidate for Congress in the 12th District of New Jersey that under FCC rules he is not permitted to run for federal office. Hedges hosts the Emmy-nominated television show On Contact, broadcast nationally on RT America. Quote, as much as I would like to bring the platform of the Green Party into this congressional race, it makes no sense to give up a media platform with a large following for a quixotic campaign against the Democratic Party machine, Hedges said. I will therefore not run for the Greens as a congressional candidate. I will, as in past elections, do all I can to highlight the progressive programs of the Greens and call out the corporate Democrats for their abject subservience to corporate power, the war machine, and the ruling oligarchs. End quote. And finally, Robert Northern, the conscientious, conscious, and spiritual French horn player known and loved throughout D.C. and the world as Brother Ah, joined the ancestors at age 86 on May 31st. After a career of playing alongside fellow jazz greats such as John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Sun Ra, and Thelonious Monk, Brother Ah hosted a three-hour eclectic music show for 20 years about sound awareness on WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. I was honored to be his guest in 2018 when he played one of his recordings as I read from my book, Olokun of the Galaxy. I extend my condolences to his wife, Ayana Watkins Northern, and his entire family. I will miss the kindness of Ah. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Mastered economics, cause you took yourself from squalor. Slave. Mastered academics, cause your grace said you were scholar. Slave. Mastered Instagram, cause you can instigate a follow. Hey, look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters. Any time I'm on mine, I be minding mine. Every time on my grind, I'm just trying to shine. Make a dollar, government, they want a dozen dime. The petty kind might kill you cause they see you shine. I done had to have a talk with myself any time. Am I a hypocrite cause I know I did plenty time. I get broke too many this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And as we continue our coverage of the uprising happening around the country in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, we want to deal with the issue of leadership and demands of the movement. And here to join me for that discussion are two activists and organizers in the D.C protests, Tracy Red and Lex. And I want to 
uh, first welcome you to the show, uh, Tracy and Lex, and start with this idea that the movement seems leaderless and that the demands are not clear in terms of what people want out of this crisis of police killing of Mr. Floyd. And I say that fully aware that there is a demand coast to coast to defund the police and to invest in human needs in our communities. I hear this narrative all the time that, you know, like, where's the leader? You know, who's guiding these people in these streets? And I feel like that's the narrative that was left over, you know, from back in the 60s civil rights movement where people could point to one black straight man that was, like, leading or who they thought was the leader. And, you know, we saw when there was one leader, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, they, they're killed. And when the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for black lives started, you know, people were also looking like, who's the leader? You know, and to have a dis centralized leadership, I think, is also what's going on here. You know, like, we're, we're out here providing tactical support, resources, and other skill sets that they need. They have the demand. You know, we've been organizing with the demands to defund the police for years now. You know, I'm, so I'm glad that L.A. decided to take away from the police and literally start to divest and invest in the side of black communities there in L.A. and L.O. County as, you know, as a whole. So I feel like, you know, like, when this all settles, you know, they will also have their list of demands. Years or so ago, Black Lives Matter as a whole, Black Lives Matter DC, BYP 100, you know, they did not exist, you know, seven, eight years ago. They came out of moments just like this. So I'm excited to see where those uh, people fall when this is all done. I, I don't know if Lex wants to add anything to that. Yeah, I think everything that you said is right. And also, um, when we think about where this began geographically, this moment began in Minneapolis, they actually have very clear demands that in a lot of ways have been pushed forward through the protesting. So they've asked, like Tracy said, to defund the police. The Minneapolis school system is now divesting from police interactions. They've also got demands to protect and expand investment in community-led health and safety strategies instead of police. And so I think we're seeing a lot of specific asks and demands from different organizers all around the country. And to the point of, you know, not really seeing clear, visible leadership, a lot of folks ignore the fact that leadership and organizers are being very heavily surveilled as well as targeted by local and federal governments. And so it's actually dangerous to be a, a highly visible organizer in this time because you can either be tracked down, you could be killed, you could be targeted, harassed, you could have your social media and your phones monitored and bugged. So um, it's actually dangerous for us to even fully use the kind of civil rights model of having a very highly visible leader. Well, perhaps because there isn't this standard spokesperson, some of the demands aren't really articulated as well to the public. So I'm really concerned about this seeming rift in in the black left around the call to defund the police versus community control of the police. And I kind of think that it doesn't need to be there because I think that, for one, when I look at the platform for the movement for black lives, they do have the call to defund the police, but they also have right next to it 
a call to control the institutions in our community, including the police and including, for example, schools and other public institutions that are part of uh, serving the community. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether there's been any debate about those two strategies, defunding the police versus community control of the police. Yeah, we're so ingrained into our our psyche as black people in this country that we need the police. You know, how many black people still believe, you know, that we need to call the police when there's a dispute in our own neighborhoods, you know, so it's so ingrained that we need the police. So we are fighting, you know, trying to undo all this learned and taught behavior that we need the police in the first place. And, you know, people are very reformist, you know, and also, you know, they aren't able to dream of a world without the police because the police has been around for our entire existence as long as this country has been around. So to say defund the police or abolish the police, people are like, what do you mean? What about the rapists? What about the murderers? I'm like, they're walking around these streets already. You know, so when we talk about that and when we, I break it down personally and the economic standpoint, I'm like, we could spend $75,000 to keep one person in jail for a year, for instance, or we could spend $5,000 for a family of four to get the intervention and the support that they need to stay in the home and stay out of jail. That's a, that's a big difference. You know, people love talking about money, so I try to use that standpoint to get them like, it's actually cheaper to abolish the police than to abolish prisons, if you really want to talk about it. And studies have shown over and over again that when we put money into communities to give them the resources that they need to intervene and have crisis intervention and violence intervention done, my, you know, my friend Monica Cannon-Grant in Boston just got money and uh, grant to come up with a uh, crisis drop-in center out there in, in the city of Boston to address the issues of mostly like in the neighborhood of Roxbury about violence as being done within our own community. And I feel like that's a great example. Like when we put resources in the community, we know what we need more than the police. You know, these police officers in DC, many of them live in Maryland to be very honest. And I think just over half of them actually live here in the city. Okay. Lex, do you want to add something? Yeah. I would just say that while there are a lot of similarities and continuities of what we're experiencing right now in this current moment um, from the past, even looking back to Ferguson and the uprising there and in Baltimore, I think there's something about this moment that feels very unprecedented. And this is honestly a moment for us to experiment and see how far we can push it. And so things like abolition are feeling more and more possible. And so part of it is charting steps and strategies that will get us closer to abolition. And so for a lot of organizations, such as the Black Visions Collective in uh, Minneapolis and um, different groups in Atlanta and even D.C., um, defunding the police, taking actual physical resources from the police is a step towards abolition. And so I believe in community control over resources. I don't necessarily believe in community control over police because that only further invests us in a structure that ultimately needs to be dismantled. So coming out of the protests and this uprising and this this mass uprising, not only here, but around the country, what would a first step to victory look like as far as policing here in D.C.? I think a first step is, you know, follow the suit of the city of Minneapolis. They decide to remove police officers from their public schools. How many of our schools here in this city have more police officers than they do counselors? You know, that to me would be a great first step. Another step would be, you know, I, I think, honestly, Minneapolis has finally reached that point. Like, 
let's talk about this Brandon and this Armin, our police officers, and literally start from scratch. You know, so I think that's a great place that D.C. can be in with just the, you know, D.C. only has control over D.C. police, you know, the MPD. So I feel like that's the great step that could also maybe rip over into PG County, Montgomery County, you know, the Virginia, Arlington, Alexander, you know, all these other places that surround the city. This could be literally that ripple effect that we need to, to bring about the change, you know. When they said that they're removing all police from their schools, I literally cried in my room. I'm like, that's going to save so many black children from being tackled and their deaths or expelled or handcuffed while they're just trying to go to school to learn, but also battling, you know, black people in their neighborhood being killed by the police. You know, that to me just, it was like a huge weight lifted. Yes, it's only one city, but that still affected thousands of black children in this country. I agree with everything that Tracy just said. And also, I think in D.C., it looks like actually accomplishing and, and accepting this, the ongoing campaigns in terms of decriminalizing sex work, ending stop and frisk, and not building any more new jails. There has been a plan to um, construct a new jail in D.C., and we know that the issue of police brutality and police violence is not just stop at the interactions that we have with individual police. It connects to an entire criminal justice system or, or injustice system and mass incarceration that also needs to be addressed throughout through this movement. And also, like Tracy said, disbanding MPD is a great first step. There, I am a firm believer that there is nothing salvageable within that department um, or really any department in this country, any police department. I think it also looks like abolishing unnecessary policing bodies as we have 30 different policing bodies in the district, um, such as the Metro Transit Police, who have abused and killed and harassed black and brown um, young people for years now. And so I think getting rid of those policing bodies as well is a step towards the right direction here in D.C. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up, you know, that it does not just stop, you know, when we're face-to-face with the police, you know, as black people in this country. I got news today that a black man was killed in his jail cell from being pepper sprayed just today in this country. I, You know, I was getting so many news stories about so many different things, so I didn't catch his name, you know, fully, but that still torture that's going on. Yeah, I mean, I'm a product of two parents that have been in and out of surgery prison, you know, throughout my entire upbringing, two brothers that have been in prison, an uncle that's been in prison, you know, so I definitely understand the fact that I haven't been in prison. It's actually <laughs> nothing but, but, but a God somewhere out there. In order to achieve those types of victories and success, it seems like it does involve putting pressure on the city council. But I'm hearing criticism of strategies like that, saying that they involve policy. But it seems like any type of change will involve a change in policy and working with policymakers. Yeah, I mean, we have had police review boards and cities for years where like Kentucky, like in Louisville, they have had police review boards since like 2008, I believe. And yet they still march into this black woman's house and open fire on an MP that someone that also worked for the same city that they worked for. And she was still killed in her home. Right. Right. And so, the city with a police review board. Right. Right. Yeah. I yeah. Think, uh, part of it is that in this moment, we need an abundance of, solutions, not meaning that some of the solutions that people have aren't in contradiction. I know that a solutions platform just came out today that was 
arguing for things that have actually already been implemented and haven't worked. So I do believe that, like, we do need legislative changes. Like, that includes defunding the police. That is a legislative change. We also need community changes that have nothing to do with the system that we're going up against. We need to be able to create, you know, community defense groups. We need to be implementing political education. And so I think it shouldn't necessarily be about pitting people on the black left against each other, which a lot of times it can manifest itself that way, but it's about making sure that we are holistically covering all the things that need to happen to create an environment that is ripe for revolution and that is ripe for dismantling this oppressive system that we're living under. Well, I thank you so much for sharing your insights and your ideas and your visions with me today. I've been speaking with two organizers, activists in the D.C. protests in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, Tracy Red and Lex. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Of course, it was great to finally be back on the show. Thank you so much. You believe corporations running marijuana, ooh, and your country again ran by a casino owner, ooh, pedophile sponsor, uh, and up you lost it, bastard, and I told you once before that you should kill your master, now that's the line that's probably gonna get my ass up, master of these politics, you swear that you got options, swipe. master of opinion, cause you vote with the white collar, swipe. the 13th amendment says that slavery's a Get all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters. Confucius say, Man, you better thug out. Get the bag and the bug out. Uh, try to run home, you might run your luck out. Cause just when your base is loaded, they'll roll a grenade in the thugout. Earth folk, not a mellow bunch. We got our thumbs in the air like hella bus. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And as you heard earlier in the show, some of the young people I spoke to this week who were protesting outside the White House said that their outrage is sparked by the recent homicides of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor at the hands of police. But that the terror for them goes back 400 years. And if you ever wonder why, until this day, blacks make up such a sizable portion of South Carolina's population and Democratic base, it is because South Carolina, namely Charleston, was the first major port of entry for Africans brought to what became the United States. And nearly 100 years before Africans were brought to Jamestown, Virginia, in 1526, enslaved Africans were part of a Spanish expedition to what is now South Carolina. Those Africans launched a rebellion in November of that same year, and the Spanish could not sustain the settlement, which they abandoned a year later. And that brings me to my next guest. Natan Elaine Kemp is co-author of There's Something About Edgefield, which includes her research into the American roots of her family, which had been enslaved in Edgefield, South Carolina, and continued to reside there in the first decades after the Civil War. Welcome to On the Ground, Natan. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
Well, until I read your book, I had no idea about Edgefield. So in the decades after the Civil War, black people were routinely murdered, abused, burned from their homes by whites. They are determined to violently reject their claim to equal citizenship and their humanity. So most of us know about Jim Crow terror existing throughout the South, the Deep South, and might give Mississippi the crown for that type of terror. But what is the something about Edgefield, South Carolina? And did you always know about it? Or did you find out about it while researching your family history? It was the latter. I did not know about Edgefield uh, County until I started researching my family history. My paternal grandparents were both born in Edgefield County. What is it about Edgefield? In the title, there is something about Edgefield. In 1860, Edgefield County had the sixth highest enslaved population in the United States. You may have heard of Representative Preston Brooks, who came Senator Charles Sumner on the Senate floor in the early 1850s. Preston Brooks was the congressional representative from Edgefield County. South Carolina, people outside the state always think of Charleston, may think of a few other locations, but During antebellum time period, it was the areas of Edgefield District, as it was known at the time, and Abbeville District, where Vice President John C. Calhoun were from. Those areas were the powerhouse of the states, and those areas were very pro-slavery, very dominant in terms of how they exerted power in the state of South Carolina and shaped policy throughout the state. There was... A portion in your book, when you talk about uh, Edgefield's ugly history, and you talk about the black codes, and when you wrote that, the editor of a newspaper in Edgefield announced that if Congress failed to allow the proposed black codes compelling the Negro to labor, the only option was to keep the freedmen from becoming landowners. The editor called for a tax of one to $5,000 upon every white man who sells, rents, gives, loans, or in any way conveys to a Negro any tract, parcel, or acreage of land. Fortunately, Congress quickly responded by passing the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which made it illegal to discriminate against the freedmen by assigning them an inferior legal or economic status. On July 9, 1868, the states ratified the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed equal protection of the laws to residents of every state. Despite this, a freedman testified to the Freedmen's Bureau that it was, quote, dangerous for a black man to live in the Edgefield District, South Carolina, because white men were murdering the freedmen. So that seems to tell, say it all to me from your book. There's something about Edgefield. And when I think about the white men murdering the freedmen, meaning you know, black men at that time, or black women also, it brings me back to today, because I thought that despite the chaos and real trauma that we're all experiencing right now in our country, I thought that the history that you provide in your book relates directly to today in terms of the young people out in the streets uh, protesting the murder of George Floyd. And I wanted to to know before we get back to some of the things that you discovered in your research, how you see today's events. I think you have a certain insight 
relating that history from Edgefield to today? Um, first, I want to give credit that that section of the book was written by my late co-author, Edna Gail Bush. Her great-grandfather, Albert Bush, was one of about, he was part of 2% of Blacks who were able to acquire land in Edgefield after the Civil War. In the book, I talk about Ida uh, B. Wells and what she says in a red record, alleged causes of lynching. She mentions Edgefield by name. Blacks were killed just because they attempted to exercise their right to vote. And you ask, what, what is it about Edgefield? I want to mention that at the time after the Civil War, so in early Reconstruction, there is a person by the name of Lawrence Kane. He gives an account about the number of eligible voters at the time of June 1868, just before the presidential election. There were 4,000, I think, 990-something eligible black voters, of course, all men. And there were only about 2,569 eligible white male voters. Blacks could control things politically just by their vote because they outnumbered the whites. Hmm. And I think Hmm. people tend to forget that. And let me also mention, what is it about Edgefield? Edgefield district slash county, because it became a county in 1868, was the only place in South Carolina where the presidential election of 1868 was not held. So everywhere else in South Carolina, blacks, recently freed blacks were able to vote, but not in Edgefield. Unfortunately, what is happening today has happened periodically throughout African-American experience in the United States. It is unfortunate, but it is not new. It is not shocking, maybe for those who don't know history, but for those who spent time delving into either their family history or studying the history of a particular area or the United States, you're going to come across this. And I think the massacres of black people uh, occurred around their attempt to vote. Do you want to tell us about those? I think in the book, we mentioned the Hamburg massacre which is one, and that received a lot of attention. That was even discussed in the halls of Congress, uh, that particular massacre. And it started off in a sort of a minor dispute. Uh, You had blacks who were, I think, preparing for uh, a march. These were soldiers around the time of the 4th of July for independence. And there were a couple white farmers who were trying to travel along the road, and there was an argument that started. Basically, I think you had one white farmer uh, killed, or a white resident killed, but a number of blacks were killed. And it all started with just this tension between these white farmers who were probably a little irritated with these blacks who they see walking around with rifles. There is another massacre that's mentioned in the, I believe it is in the introduction that is written by Elaine Roundtree. But before you get to that one, though, so what what happened at the end of the Hamburg? I mean, how many black people wound up being killed as a result of this um, initial skirmish? I do not recall the exact numbers that were killed. I, I just remember that it was um, it received a lot of attention. 
because it was viewed as a massacre, not a riot. And that's something I I wanted to add to in discussion with what's going on in today's event. There is an African proverb that states, until lions become their own historians, every story will glorify the hunter. And we need to tell our stories because presented from a non-black perspective, sometimes what occurred in Hamburg is described as a riot versus a massacre. And it's who's telling the story. Okay. Let me say where Hamburg was located because it doesn't exist today. Hamburg was on the border of Augusta, Georgia. Hamburg was like an early Tulsa, Oklahoma. So after the war, you had a lot of blacks who wanted to leave behind tilling of the land. And you had, you had a society that developed with your lawyers and your bankers, your judges, uh, people who opened up their own businesses, people who got away from the agriculture. They built a society. And part of that, what happened in Hamburg, which was, you would think, just a minor like dispute on the road, there was this tension because whites disliked these blacks who had, who had managed to free them, who had managed to, after freedom, develop their own societies and succeed. That is the voice of author Natan Elaine Kemp, and we're talking about her book, There is Something About Edgefield. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. Let it sink in. 2020 on the map. Raw one cut in my hourglass. Don't watch it spill to the bottom half. You see the piece now running fast on the tarmac. Get a starter jack. C4 when I run it back. Like a track star running his lap. Nah, like when it's still This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averm in conversation with author Natan Elaine Kemp about her book, There is Something About Edgefield. And before the break, Natan, we were talking about that period right after the Civil War when there were so many tensions between newly freed African people who were succeeding despite the tremendous odds against them and the backlash that they faced from whites who did not want to see them do well uh, and the tremendous violence and even assaults and murder perpetrated against the black population in Edgefield, South Carolina, a notoriously violent place. It kind of reminds me of the eulogy, the sermon that the Reverend Al Sharpton gave on Thursday at the memorial for George Floyd, when he just talked about white folks having their knee on our neck, not just in Floyd's killing, but for these so many centuries. Right. Now, um, I'm, I'm seeing another part in the book where, and I think this is here you were talking about the, that same time. It says, with every passing decade after the Civil War ended, restrictions on blacks worsened. I think you were talking about the black codes at that point. For example, while... No, this is this is Edna Gale Bush speaking about her ancestors. And she's saying, yes. while my great-grandfather Alfred was able to vote in 1868, by 1904, my grandfather Albert could not. 
The stripping of rights began after the Hamburg riot. See my co-author's chapter for details. She's talking about you. And the election of Wade Hampton in 1876. A participant in the riot. He's talking about the Hamburg riot and future governor and senator of South Carolina, Edgefield native Benjamin Ryan Tillman stated, quote, we have done our level best to prevent blacks from voting. And we have scratched our heads to find out how we could eliminate the last one of them. We stuffed ballot boxes. We shot them. We are not ashamed of it. End quote. So that's that's in the book. So. Um, I know that that was one incident there that you know you you chronicle so many uh interesting and just i don't know just a real horrific history there so the um the other thing that really stood out for me was your work and your skill as a researcher of your family history and you know as someone who has done just a little bit of that on my own, I was really struck by how the advent, I guess, of DNA testing has made such an impact on that history. Most of us who are African-American who are researching our history hit certain roadblocks. But DNA testing, many of us are maybe working with that in terms of some of these kits that you can get mailed to you and tells you about your genealogical background and whatever but it also can tell you about your relatives and people are finding family that they didn't even know about so in terms of uh, researching our roots of our enslaved ancestors it's also letting us know very often who the European usually the European male ancestor is who raped an enslaved woman or a girl and then she bared his child. That's correct. I believe uh, my co-author and her chapters was able to reveal that information and how through DNA testing, she was able to connect the dots. Uh, It is important to say that you still have to do the research because you can get DNA results. And unless someone is like a first or second cousin, you may not be able to just quickly determine how you're related to that individual. Now, in in reading my book, you may recall that in Chapter 4, I profiled someone by the name of Columbus Blair or C.L. Blair. He was involved in a killing of of someone uh, during the height of Reconstruction. I didn't have it at the time that I submitted the manuscript, but uh, after the manuscript was submitted, DNA testing basically has revealed that he was, like I suspected, he sired my second great-grandfather, Nathaniel Blair. Wow. And you, the other part of this whole DNA issue for me is the fact that you can reach out to people. And it's interesting that some are interested in uh, understanding the relationship there and accepting it. And other people are really hostile to the idea of you kind of of that information being brought to them, even if it's just scientifically proven on the paper. Yes, you will encounter that. And I would caution people to don't react. If they don't respond, hopefully they won't send anything nasty. Usually what you may have is someone will initially respond and then stop the conversation. They won't continue the conversation after that. I've had that experience. But let me say that it's not just uh, whites who may 
disbelieve that there's any way they could be related to you as a black person. You have other blacks who may not want to talk, and there may be stories they've been told, maybe realities they don't want to face. So I want to say that it it encompasses all individuals in terms of how sometimes people react to learning that, oh my goodness, why are you so close to me? How could we be first or second cousins? Right, exactly. I mean, that, yeah, that, I mean, that can go up to current living situations like, you know, who's, who's father, who's, who's, you know, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I would say there, there is that issue because race is such an issue in this country that sometimes folks just can't even handle a discussion regarding, well, we appear, based on the DNA results, to be connected. Let's try to work together to try to determine. Or could you help me out because you have more likely a complete genealogy versus what I have. Right, right. And some people are open and willing to help, and some are not. And so it's hit or miss. I can't tell you how someone's going to react. Right, right. So, um... What is there? Is there going to be a second part to this? Is I, I found it almost like a mystery. I was so absorbed reading this. Uh, uh, you know, I read at night, so like I would just uh, strain to the edge of my being able to stay awake to keep reading. <laughs> um, so after you did this very impressive uh, amount of research, and do you have a desire to do more and to do a another book? Yes, let me answer this in two parts. First, number one, I am not only a an author, but I am a publisher. My company is called Rocky Pond Press. And last August, I published a book titled Virtue of Cain, From Slave to Senator, the bio- biography of Lawrence Cain. It's written by Kevin M. Cherry Sr., a white man who discovered about five to seven years ago that his second great-grandfather was not part Cherokee, but in fact was black man, very fair-skinned, from Edgefield District, South Carolina. I happen to mention Lawrence Kane in the book that I co-authored. I think both Gail and I mentioned Lawrence Kane. Just briefly, Lawrence Kane was educated, even though he wasn't supposed to be taught, he was born during slavery. Someone educated him. He accompanied, he was a body servant to a Confederate soldier during the Civil War. He was injured at Appomattox where uh, Robert E. Lee eventually surrendered. When he returned to Edgefield, he opened up the first school for colored students in 1866. He was a census enumerator in 1870. He joined the government as a state representative lower house in 1868. So I just want to mention he's an extraordinary individual and if someone wants to get into deeper what happened in Edgefield, I mention it, but his book, because he's a direct descendant of this person who was in power and then lost his seat in 1876 when white regained power in South Carolina. So I would mention the book Virtue of Cain from Slave to Senator Biography of Lawrence Cain. I am. I will be working on another book, but talking about my Virginia roots. There's a big difference. 
just in researching, I've noticed between South Carolina and Virginia versus sort of the upper South and the deep South, there's a big difference. And I like to highlight some of those differences. Those ancestors of mine were landowners, whereas my ancestors in, in South Carolina and Edgefield were not. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think I saw, saw the beginnings of some of that, you know, toward the end of the book. Uh, you mentioning some of that, that was very interesting to me because it's closer here to D.C. and many where many of our listeners live, uh, even though we have listeners all over the country and all over the world. But um, I'm going to have to leave it there. Uh, but I've so enjoyed this conversation and I'm, I'm, I will definitely have you back because I'm sure our listeners want to hear more. Uh, especially as you continue your research and 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 also giving us some tips uh, on doing research. That's that's a whole other conversation that I'm sure many listeners would would love to hear. And uh, as they may be doing their own research, I've been speaking with Nathan Elaine Kemp, author of "There's Something About Edgefield." Thank you for joining me today, Nathan. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Michael Byfield for their contributions to the show. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we have a new podcast on Apple, Android, and other platforms. The name of the podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averam, with just a W for with, and it has a picket sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. So On the Ground, W, Esther Averam. The music we played this hour included Just from Run the Jewels 4, featuring Killer Mike and LP. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace and fight the power.